Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to escape the hot weather and be indoors and enjoy the cool weather and study your word. And so uh, we appreciate that. And um, we just pray for our fellowship, our, our uh, study tonight. Give us insight and wisdom as we study to give us insight and wisdom about ourselves and how to make sure these things don't happen to us uh, as we study uh, spiritual warfare. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, where we left off um, that Satan has power over, of death over the excommunicated believers. Any questions before I move on about that particular one? If you chewed on it and you've thought about it, or how Satan buffets you and different things like that. Everybody's good there, right? So here's my thing. Picking up on last week, how come so few practice 1 Corinthians 5? Ah, and, and why is it too painful to put a boundary down on a sinning believer? Now, we're not talking about, you know, a sinning believer that just simply, oh, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, repents, moves right on. We're talking about something saying, you know what, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do this. So when, when Shannon mentions that, what does that mean that you don't want to put a boundary down on that type of behavior? Because what's going to happen to you? Yes, you, 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 you run the risk of losing the relationship. But here's my thing. If you don't practice 1 Corinthians 5, what other choice do you have? Well, I'll just love him back to Jesus. Show me the verse. Show me the verse that when a brother or sister's in sin, that Jesus said, or the apostles said, love them back to Jesus. In fact, the most loving thing you can do is follow what scripture tells you to do by cutting them off because that's the loving thing to do because it's the one way to bring them back. So if I know how, if that's gonna be the way to bring them back, then the most loving thing we'll do, to do is to disfellowship with them. However, you're going to pay a price, right? The price is you're gonna feel the pain of that sacrifice which is necessary. So you may not see the grandkids. You may not see them for a long time. They may not, uh, you might not see them for a couple of years maybe. I don't know. Just all depends. But you will pay a price. So one of the things is they don't want to lose the relationship and they, second, they don't want to sacrifice for themselves. Go ahead. And you're going to get called a bunch of bad names. Yes, you'll be called every name under the book and you'll be called by Laodicean Christians that, that actually don't understand 1 Corinthians 5 who say, that's hateful, Jesus would never do that, that's unchristian, that's unloving. You'll get all those things thrown your way by Laodiceans who actually don't know the intent of 1 Corinthians 5 or don't practice it or just simply are ignorant of it. And so you will get a major, major pushback. Now, everybody that I counsel that has done that, guess who their main detractors are? It's Christians and Christians in their family that do that stuff to them. And then if you ask them, okay, where, you know, are they the most mature Christians? No, they're not. They're at a real shallow level. So I, I, that's a, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to do. But like I said last time, it works. 
Jim. They will form a posse against you. You're absolutely right. And, and if you've had that done to you, you're persona non grata all of a sudden. But then you say, here's, here's the thing. This is funny because whether Jim or anyone else in this room does it, when you say, look, dude, it says not to have dinner with them. And you show them, it's right here. Then what do they do? And these are Christians who believe the Bible. Then what do they do? You must be reading it out of context. Uh, that contradicts uh, what Jesus would say. That contradicts what other passages say. Okay, so then I'm not the one who said it. Paul did. So Paul's contradicting himself, or Paul's contradicting Jesus, or Paul's contradicting Peter. What do we got going on here? Do you see what starts happening with Laodiceans? Do you see what starts happening? It's, a, it's a, a hermeneutic violation, and hermeneutics means the interpretation of Scripture, to say that Paul is contradicting Jesus, or that Paul is contradicting himself, or Peter, and that must, Paul must be out of touch or out of sorts or something like that. Or, Brandon, you're just not interpreting it correctly, or whatever, or whoever. Do you know what you need to do at that point? Don't even have the argument at that point. You just say, you know what? I'm following the Bible. Apparently you're not. Sorry. This is, the real, this is how it goes. Because at the end of the day, it is the only way to bring them back. It's not a guarantee though, but it is a way of bringing them back. Because what you see in the Bible is isolation causes one to wake up. That's what the key is, is isolation. We're built for community. We're built to be around each other. I mean, look at the lockdowns. It separated everybody. What, what, happened, what happened in isolation during the lockdowns? What did people start having? Depression, stress, suicides, because they're isolated, right? So you can see that the devil would use isolation to mess people's minds up, right? But then in this sense, God is saying the proper use of isolation is when a brother or sister is in sin and will not repent. Then Satan can work on them, and then it, it hopefully will bring them back. Okay, everybody clear on that? Clear as mud, right? Okay, let's move into the other realm. Satan can control the believer. Now, I've talked to people before, and I've, I've discussed with them uh, demonology, uh, Satanology, and, and the, the whole concept of the spiritual warfare. And this concept is not readily taught, therefore many believers don't understand it, and don't know when it's happening to them. Okay? And the, the concept is Satan can demonize, or a demon can demonize you. So the, the Greek word means demonize, okay? There is no such thing as the word possession in the New Testament. About, there's no such thing as demon possession. We use that term to describe when a demon is in full control of an unbeliever um, and talking through them, speaking through them, controlling their actions, giving them superhuman strength and all that. We call it that, but the Bible doesn't, doesn't divide it up. The Bible just calls it the person is being demonized, whether it's an unbeliever or a believer. But the scriptures allow for the demonization of believers, 
okay? So what does that include? Well, really when you slice and dice everything else and you, you look at all the examples in scripture, there are basically four ways that demons can, or fallen angels or Satan can control people. Influence, Satan and the demons can influence the person, whether it's Christian or non-Christian. Uh, suppression, demons and fallen angels have the ability to suppress people in their sin and keep them in it where they lose power to get out of it on their own. That can happen to believers and unbelievers. Uh, then the third modus uh, operandi is oppression. Uh, believers can be oppressed and... Uh, and um, unbelievers can be oppressed. And then the fourth one is possession. And I would, I would say that only unbelievers can be possessed. Okay? So the first three of demonization can happen to a believer. Okay? So when I'm discussing Satan can control a believer, I'm going to discuss it in those three realms and not possession. Okay? So those three things. Influence, suppression, oppression. Okay. Influence is thoughts being put in your head, okay, to sin, uh, to have wicked thoughts and those kinds of things. Sometimes they're not coming from you, they're coming from their ability to put thoughts into your head. Can they do that? Yes. Can they read your mind? No, but they can slip thoughts into your head. And what you're supposed to do is take those thoughts captive when they enter your head, okay? Second thing is oppression, uh, sorry, suppression. Suppression then starts when the believer gets into sin and refuses to repent, okay? They get into a protracted period of time. They think it's okay for them to do. And then what they don't understand is that the longer they stay in the sin, God will then allow a demon or a fallen angel then to keep them suppressed in the sin. So they won't be able to break whatever habit, addiction, whatever's going on. They will actually be spiritually weak and try, trying to deal with that. So they're not dealing with just the sin one-on-one. -on -one. They're dealing with the sin and the suppression at the same time. Okay? And they can't break free. Oppression means influence, suppression, and I'm starting to now be controlled in my actions and thoughts and behavior and attitudes by the demon, by the fallen angel, but I'm not possessed. And possession means they have a full 100% control of you. But oppression, the, the demon can oppress you for periods of time whether it's harassment in dreams, whether that is just harassment in general. And what do you mean by harassment in general? Well, um, things happening around you. When you look and study case studies between the, the, the demon-possessed people and oppressed people, as far as them seeing supernatural things, there's not much difference. So oppression, people start seeing things, free-floating objects, objects moving. They actually can see phantoms or whatever, you know, uh, spirits or whatever in their house. And even though they're saved and they're believers, then at that point they're being oppressed, okay? And so it's a real thing. And quite frankly, there's been a lot of Christians that report to me, they see things, they hear things, they, they're experiencing things around them and, and um, they're having some form of oppression. 
um, but they're not being possessed. So when we look at these passages that I'm going to show you, this is where I'm going with it. And everyone needs to be fully uh, uh, in understanding that this can happen to you if you allow it. And that's the key. Satan can only go as far as you allow him to go. He will only take so much territory from you as much as you give him. So when you give over territory to him, he will take it. Okay, if you allow thoughts to continue to roll in your head and do not take them captive, that will then turn into a suppression or then eventually an oppression. If you get into a protracted period of sin and you refuse to repent and you find yourself eventually not being able to escape, then something like suppression might be happening to you. Okay? That's the things you have to understand. So let's look at an example with this. And uh, let's look at the first example of uh, demonization to the, to the early church with Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. So they actually had done a deal together with each other, that this is what they were going to do, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so what was happening in context was the early church had been cut off from the Jewish community because they're all Jewish, Right? So they've been cut off. Once they're cut off, no one will do business with them. They lose their jobs. And so what's happening in the early church is the richer elements of the church are now selling their land and and places to provide money to help people stay alive. Okay, this is not communism, okay? A lot of people will take this and and do liberation theology with it and say, see, they're all sharing one another uh, in their commune. No, that's not what's happening some have been cut off so bad they don't have any money. And so this is a short-term solution to a major problem because they immediately got cut off. Can't go to the synagogue, all that stuff. Okay, so what was happening? You see an example with Barnabas. Barnabas sold a piece of property and he says, man, I'm gonna donate the whole proceeds to the, early, to the church, laid it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute that as needed. Okay, so um, Ananias then starts doing the same thing, but something changes. Okay, I got a question. This, we were talking for a minute ago. Um, I got a friend, like, I don't know, probably five years ago, but um, I left her, but she's kind of crazy to me <laughs> five years ago. That's good but, to leave then. But yeah, <laughs> so look, her, her Facebook still, she's in the NAR stuff all the time. Oh, really? Crazy, they're not even pastors I mean, crazy people but she, in her facebook she's got she got a demon in her house and, and they come to, in the wall and comes out and uh, i pray in jesus name blah, 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 and like but she's get crazy stuff on stuff and different nar stuff in church all in her yeah. facebook stuff and i try her sometimes and show a little stuff but she didn't get it so i stopped that and i don't know but that's bad she's saying she, what you said huh? yeah it is and if she's seen them which people do, um, that's oppression. Yeah. Just seeing them. But here's the thing. You mentioned something very key. The entry door for her is that NAR theology. 
Yeah, it was. It's a false theology. It's a doctrine of demons, NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. That's, that's false doctrine. So as you can see in that example right there, the entry point is the false doctrine. Yes. And she persisted in it, and therefore opens her up to not only uh, you know, su- uh, suppression, but oppression. And now she's being oppressed by false doctrine. Exactly. That's it. You nailed it. That's exactly what's happening. So it does happen. It does happen. Okay. So in context, Ananias and Sapphira were going to do the, th- the same thing, but they cut a deal with themselves. They made a covenant of lies with each other. And they're going to pretend that they're going to give the proceeds to the apostles and say it's all the proceeds while keeping some back for themselves and not telling them that. Okay, so let's, let's understand something, first of all. It is according to their free will whether they want to sell it or not and give the proceeds to the church. The apostles never demanded that. It was voluntarily done by people like Barnabas. And so they didn't have to do this. In fact, they could have given a portion and say, hey, Peter, we're going to give half of it, or we're going to give a third of it, or they could have given anything they wanted. But it's the key is they told Peter, we're given 100% for what we sold it while keeping some back, okay? So there's a lie there in that sense. So that's what's happening. So verse three says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? The term fill is the same time, a theological term as when you ask to be filled by the Holy Spirit, okay? So let's understand it from that perspective so you can understand how Satan fills him, okay? So when you're exercising your gifts, um, typically you want to pray that the Holy Spirit empowers you to exercise your gifts. Um, and, and, and being filled by the Holy Spirit means that you're yielding control to him to use that supernatural ability through you while you yield to him, okay? So I pray that before I preach, that I'm yielding to him as he uses the gift of teaching and preaching through me. And then when I'm preaching, what he'll do is he'll direct me different places, say this, say that, don't say that, say this, don't say that. And he directs me as I'm preaching. And that's yielding to him. When I was young, I, couldn't, I didn't yield because I didn't know how to yield. So when I taught, I taught strictly by notes. And I have notes, and I know my outline of where I need to go, but, it, um, but when I was t- uh, preaching early on in my ministry, I just stayed with my notes, and I didn't get off of my notes. That, what I figured out was I was uh, not yielding. I was, I was, you know, teaching the Bible and everything, but there was things that the Holy Spirit was wanting to prompt me to say and, and, and illustrate or whatever that I just shut down because I was so afraid to get off my notes. And if I get out there, how, how am I going to get back if I say something? And so what I did was quench the Holy Spirit in that. As I got uh, along in my preaching, what I started realizing is, yeah, I need my notes and I need to know what I'm saying and I'm following a, a general outline, but I need to live, leave space in there for the Holy Spirit to speak through me as I'm preaching. So a lot of times what I'm saying, I, don't even, I never plan to say it. So I would say about 30% of my sermons, I never plan to say it. It just came 
at the time while I'm preaching. And that's why all three services, if, if some of you are around for all three, they're different because he's changing as I'm going. Okay, that's called yielding to the Holy Spirit and being filled by him so he can use me and say, Brandon, go here, Brandon, go here, say that, don't say this, hit that target, hit this, hit this. People will come back to me and says, hey man, I heard you in the first service and you didn't mention that, but you mentioned that in the second service and that was aimed right at me. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Because apparently he wanted a message to get to you that the first service didn't need to hear. And that's how you'll, you'll know that the Holy Spirit is moving. Okay, so that's an example of yielding to him that he can use the gifts while you're exercising them. Okay? So feeling means control. So when I'm preaching, I'm giving control over to him to allow him to deviate off my notes as much as he wants to. Now, of course, he's helping me prep and getting ready for the message and, and all of that, but there's stuff he wants to say on the fly right at that time. So that's giving uh, him the control over my vocal cords and my thought patterns, okay? So that's what feeling is. But the same word is used how... Or Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? So what did Ananias do based on what I told you on the positive side? He allowed something. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. If you don't allow him to take control, he won't. You have to yield to him. So it tells you that Ananias and Sapphira both yielded to Satan himself. They let him have control over them. Now, here's my question. Did they do it knowingly? Yes. Don't want you to think about that. Did they do it knowingly? I mean, so here's my, uh, when I say knowingly, it's like, hey, uh, Satan, control us now because we're going to lie to the Holy Spirit. We're going to lie to Peter. So what do you mean that they allow? What do I mean by that? What does the scripture mean that they gave control over to Satan? How is the question I'm asking? How did they give control to Satan? Because you know, Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They're not unbelievers, man. They are believers, and Satan would be their enemy in their head. So it would be the last thing they wanted to do is say, hey, Satan, control us on this thing. So there's where we have to discover how then did they give control without knowing it. Yes, they weren't. They weren't trusting God. That starts them down the path. But let's go back to, go ahead, Bill. Okay, so yielding to the Holy Spirit, as he, he led me to uh, sell my property and give the, uh, all the proceeds to the church, okay? That's what the Holy Spirit led them to do. But then something stopped them. 
So to what Terry is saying and Bill is saying is correct. The Holy Spirit was prompting the wealthier parts of the church to sell their property and give it. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira intentionally started out to do as they yielded to the Holy Spirit. But then what it, here's the thing. Can you stop yielding to the Holy Spirit? Well, this is the deceptiveness of Satan. He's going to appear as an angel of light, okay? So let's answer the questions and, and just hold on to these thoughts. So let's establish this. They were initially convinced by the Holy Spirit to do this, okay? So they had yielded, and they went ahead and sold it, right? They went ahead and sold it. They were totally on board with the Holy Spirit and this whole thing. But something stops them, okay? So let's leave it at that. What's your questions? Let's get the questions out. Oh, it wasn't a question. I was just thinking that when that thought, when, the, when they were attacked by Satan, they had a, the thought of holding it back. They didn't stop at that thought. They let that continue. They didn't bring the Holy Spirit back in and tell okay. him, you know, you need to take this thought out of my mind and let me yield completely to you okay so remember we start with the first degree influence well, look, look, uh, let me right here and then get to dr mensink okay so you're, you're you're on you're on something okay so the thought then enters their mind to keep a portion back okay but my thing is okay is you think satan's putting the the thought in their head maybe Maybe, okay? Let's go back to Michael and we'll come back to Dr. Mensing. I was just going to say that <clears throat> I think it's uh, the flesh and they get into the flesh by thinking that they're not going to be able to be provided for. And thus, that's what begins to stew the, the deceptiveness of that. And so they decide then okay. to allow themselves to hold You're back. You're tracking. So the thought is... Remember, when Satan, when Satan speaks to you, he speaks to you as an angel of light, okay? He's not going to put in the thought of, hey, man, let's go rob banks today. That's too, it wouldn't convince anybody, right? What is he going to say if he wants you to rob a bank? Hey, man, you got five kids to feed. And if you're a good father, it, you need to do what you need to do to take care of your family because... You know, if you want to be a man of God, right, you need to provide. And so sometimes, hey, you got to do what you got to do. The ends justify the means. You see that? What did I just say? I said for something positive, you need to do this. You got to, you got to feed your kids. You don't want your kids to starve. What kind of father would you be if you let your kids starve? And hence, someone would be provoked and say, I know stealing's wrong, but... I got to feed these kids. You see what I'm saying? It's not let's go rob banks and get rich. It's always there's a good reason why you're going to do this. You see what I'm, that's the angel of light kind of context. That's what he's doing to the political pundits right now, right? The ideologues, they really believe they're doing good by ushering in communism. They really think it will work. And they really think that will benefit. They're, they're crazy. But they, they, that's how they sleep at night. They're crazy. 
but they've believed the angel of light. For It's for a good reason. Okay, Dr. Mency. All right, I have one que- or two questions. Number one is, are there different levels of... of, uh, of uh, of uh, committing to the spirit. Can I be 50% committed, 90%, or 100%? And number two, always, always, in my experience, the first issue is the end justifies the means. Yes, it, it's, it's that. And there's an end that justifies the means to Ananias and Sapphira. Let's answer the first one. In understanding the filling of the Holy Spirit, you, and, and he mentioned degrees, it, it, you can think of it this, levels, degrees, or categories, okay, in your feeling. When you ask the Lord to fill you um, by the Holy Spirit, it depends on what area you're asking him for. See, what you can be, you know, the, people use the general term, a spirit-filled believer, Okay, but what you have to understand is there are categories in each believer that are unfilled or uncontrolled. Does that make sense? So the believer might, might be great in these areas right here and they're, they're yielding in these areas, but over here in this category or these categories, they un, they're unyielding. So... To, to your point, there are degrees of yieldedness and there's flat out areas in our lives that are completely unyielded. We know we can't do this and we, unyield, we don't yield to it. So what happens is inside the believer, you've got believers that might be 80% filled, 75%, 50% filled, but they have these other areas and the other areas that are not controlled by the Holy Spirit is what gets them in trouble. So, let's say you have the gift of teaching, okay? You have the gift of teaching. So, you yield when you're using the gift of teaching. And you yield, and boy, man, your lessons come out brilliant, and you're, you're on target and everything like that. But then you're unyielding in your marriage. So, with the gift, it will look brilliant because you're yielding to the Holy Spirit. You'll, the, the gifting will work properly. You'll see the supernatural effect while you're teaching. But then you go home to your marriage and you're unyielding and it's a disaster. It's a complete disaster at home because that area is unyielding. So I give you that as an example as you can have parts that are unyielded to the Holy Spirit. The key is that we are fully filled with the Holy Spirit in all categories and all parts of us. So that's the concept of yielding to the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit gonna do? He's gonna convict you in those areas. I want control of that area, Brandon. Give me that control here. I don't have control here. I don't have control here. I need you to give me me that control. And you must yield. This is the only way to combat sin is if you want to, to have victory, you got to yield in that area and let him control you and give you the supernatural power to overcome. If not, if you're unyielding, you're never going to get out of that category. It stays in rebellion, while other places of you might be growing. You might be growing in, in category one and two and doing great, and it's awesome, but then in category five, you haven't moved an inch since you got saved. You are unyielding to that area. 
if that makes sense. So good point. It depends. It really depends on how yielding the person is. So you want you to think about that. Okay, where am I back with another question? Are we good? All good. Okay. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So he's caught them in a lie. The lie is they told Peter, this is 100% of the prophets, but they actually kept something back. But then Peter says, you have been controlled and you have yielded to Satan, which would have been a shock to them in that sense. They didn't go before Satan and say, I yield to you. So how, how did they have it? Well, it comes back to what she said and what Michael said. Their intention was to do good. And then the thought goes through their head. You know what? We're all starving here, man. Um, we've all been cut out of the synagogue. Um, they're saying we're not Jews. Um, I can't, we can't go back to the rabbi. No one will do business with us. If I give it all away, how are we going to support each other? How are we going to be supported? I think we better keep some back for a safety net. And then we'll say we gave the whole thing, but we're actually, we need to watch out for ourselves because you just don't know what's going to happen out of this. It could get really rough and people are starving right now. You see the mindset that starts happening? So the mindset has been influenced by a satanic thought. Now, here's the key. Satan will take advantages of the unyielding area. Okay. Don't think the unyielding area is them not giving the money. There's something deeper down in Ananias and Sapphira that Satan has a foothold in and is using that foothold to commit this sin. What could it possibly be? Greed, pride, doubt, fear. You got it. It's that potpourri of other things. I, don't, I doubt if God's going to take care of me. They're greedy. They're really greedy. It's un, they're not trusting. They're unyielding in the greed area. They're unyielding in the, the provision area of trust. Because that's really what their, their, their issue is. They don't really trust that God can provide. Okay, so they, they're unyielding there. There is greed going on. There's lack of faith in the provision of God. What else could there be in there? They're looking out for number one. See, w- what the early church was trying to form is, hey, we look out for each other, man. We put ourselves second. We make sure everybody's taken care of. So they're, in effect, they're, that's where their selfishness comes in. Their selfishness and their pride is all in that And what does pride do? Pride makes you self-absorbed. It makes you look at your own needs rather than other people's. People who are prideful, they don't see other people's needs. They just can't because all they see is their needs. So they're never others oriented ever because of the pride. Humility actually makes you look towards other people's needs constantly. Okay, so, so here's the thing. In their core, 
in their core of their soul, these are their problem areas. And so what Satan's going to do is he's going to put the thought in and then he's going to go to the core and use the core of them against them. And so when he puts the thoughts in their head, the thoughts will always be in line with those areas. Does that make sense? He's capitalizing on what they don't believe. You're right, man. Who's going to look out for you? And, and you've got a wife to take care of. You probably have kids. Um, man, I don't know if I trust that Jesus for everything. I mean, some, yeah, you can, but not all of it. He's feeding upon his lack of faith, and he's feeding on the greed inside of them and the self-absorption. Okay, go ahead, Chad. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but and I don't believe he was a believer, but isn't there parallel with Achan from Joshua? This, 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 to, to Ananias and Sapphira is a good point. Ananias and Sapphira are what Achan is to Joshua. You guys remember the sin of Achan? Joshua's invading the land. And they go into the area and they attack a tribe. And, and what does Achan and his wife do? They take stuff and they put it in their tent. Remember that? And, and, and Joshua's like, they go to battle and they're like, they come back and they lost. And Joshua's perplexed and he says, I don't know what happened, man. And he gets on his knees and everything. He's praying to the Lord. And the Lord appears to him and says, get up. Get up. You got sin in the camp and you need to figure that out and get that expunged out of the camp right now because it stops everything that you're doing. So they had all the tribes line up and sure enough, it was Achan and his wife who had taken things and killed them for doing that. So what happened back then is now happening in the new dispensation. The church has begun and we have the same problem. The same problem that Achan did is now happening with his wife is now happening with Ananias and Sapphira and it will be dealt severely at this point. Just like it happened in the Old Testament. Christ had died for our sins and we didn't have an answer. We were just discussing late the other night. Why were Ananias' wife put to death if Christ already died for the sin for forgiveness. I'm going to get to that. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Just hang on. Just hang on. Okay. So let's get this all straightened out in our head. He uses what proclivities and deprivations are inside of you to speak to you your language that satisfies that area. So if I do not trust in God's provision, he's going to speak a language saying, boy, howdy, you see what this rough day's coming ahead. You, you, you got to rely on yourself, man. You got to be fiercely independent because no one's looking after you, man. And so you got to do it all yourself. And the thought is, okay, you're right, man. I got no one helping me. And he's just gave you a thought that negates trusting God. Yeah, you got to take care of business, man. You got to get this. You got to do this. You got to do that, man. And, and you better build a Fort Knox around you, Right? Or if it's greed and you just want money and you just want more, say, hey man, you realize you're giving everything away? There's nothing left for you? I don't know how, if that's fair for you. You really want to do that? Because you're going to need some money. How are you? you need money to make money, Brandon. You can't give it all away. You're going to have to have something back. 
feeds on the greed, doesn't it? Or how about self-absorption? Well, who's watching out for you, Ananias and Sapphira? I understand the, the apostles are giving it to all these uh, people uh, who, who need it, but who's watching out for you? It doesn't seem like Peter's watching out for you and, and, and your wife. Why doesn't he care about you? He must have it in for you. You see how it works? They'll, 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 Satan will put something in someone's head to attack the leadership and then doubt the leadership and what the leadership is saying. Like Peter is saying, we're, we're all chipping in here, man. You don't have to do it, but it's voluntarily. And they're like, hey man, that guy has it out for me. That guy's, that's legalism or whatever he comes up with. Whatever he put in the head of, of, of Ananias and Sapphira fit their sin nature. It fit like a glove, okay? So if that happens, then they act on that. Then they have yielded themselves to Satan, and at that point, the minute they yield by giving in to the sin, Satan is now controlling them at that point. He is controlling them at that point. Not possessing, he's controlling them. And what they did is seen in the sin. What did they do? Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. That's what they did. That's how Satan controlled them. And that's how they got off. So here's the application. If you're seeing this example with Ananias and Sapphira, do not think you're above them. The same thing can happen to you and you will not know that you're being controlled by Satan. You won't. Because you have yielded to a particular sin inside of you and you have convinced yourself in the self-talk in your head that, yeah, this is the right thing to do. I gotta watch out for myself. And, the, and like Dr. Mensing says, the end justifies the mean. Hey man, I, I, you know, I got a family to take care of. I gotta watch out for me and the family. Boom, you're done. The minute you give in to that, you're done and you're being controlled at that point. And once you're controlled, it's Katie bar the door. There's no telling what you will do. Because you will think you're acting for good when you're actually doing evil. Which tells you a lot, a lot about what's going on in society, doesn't it? They all think they're doing good. The wokeism, they think they're doing good. The energy stuff, they think they're doing good. They're killing us. They're absolutely killing us, right? Okay, question. <clears throat> don't we have discernment from the holy spirit though to... <laughs> yes we do but you have to listen no. to him we do but you have to listen to him i was just wondering because you were saying you know and i was thinking wait a minute we have the holy spirit to like tell us no that is not god you will <laughs> so rest assured the holy spirit told ananias you don't do that don't do that don't do that don't do that but what over overshouted his voice their greed, their lack of trust, their emotions. See, here's the thing. Once your emotions are involved, and, and, and what's the primal emotion that, that generates sin, typically? Fear. Fear. It's fear. Fear is the most primal emotion, and Satan will work on that fear. So imagine him telling Adam fire, hey man, you give all that money, there's nothing left. Fear, fear, fear. I have nothing, I have nothing, I have nothing. Once the, he got, he's getting the emotions ramped up and you're afraid, all your theological understandings will go out the door. 
That's why he works on the, you know, the, the, the culture with emotions. They're so emotional, there's no rationalization when you talk to them, right? They're just crazy because they're emotionally driven. So how come they can't hear the, the Holy Spirit? It's because they're too emotional. All the theology goes out the door at that point. It's like, I just got to do this. And we just watched an experiment happen for two years, didn't we? Uh, people had common sense and threw all the common sense out the door and went emotional and went angry at anyone that opposed them. It was all emotions, wasn't it? They were being controlled by Satan. Didn't even know it. They didn't even know it through fear. So rest assured, the Holy Spirit's convicting. He does the work of conviction, but you gotta listen to him. And you can't listen to your emotions. Uh, there's something a lot of people don't know with COVID, but COVID induced a fear and it was a spirit of fear. It's different yes. than other fear. And the spirit of fear is, a, is evil and it is never responsive to fact or to it only was responsive to casting out. Excellent point. Because as Dr. Mensink mentioned, when you talk to these people that were brainwashed by this, facts and evidence didn't matter, did it? It didn't matter if I brought in a, a whole thing of Dr. Malone or um, who was the other guys that we, we watched? Dr. Zelenko, he passed away, right? Uh, who? Dr. McCullough, all those guys. They, here's the guys who invented the stuff telling you it's it's bad it's bad and i got something to show you this next uh in in the in the current events era all these guys who do autopsies are finding weird orama um blood clots weird orama in the last two years or year and a half all these people that are dying have these massive blood clots in found in their autopsies. So anyway, that's another story. But, but anyway, where am I at? Go ahead. Uh, one, most of us are led astray by what the enemy puts on our head. Because yeah. one, uh, it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know and be able to test and approve what God's will is. Bingo. So That's right. So the key is right there is, I must know my areas of weaknesses, my proclivities. Those categories inside my soul that I'm unyielding to, I better start yielding because they will be used against me. That's how Satan is going to come after you in the unyielding areas. He's not going to come after you in an area that you're strong in. He's like, well, you know, he's got that one. I can't mess with him, but I'm going to go here because he's in rebellion in that category. Ah, okay. So then my job is in my discipleship is to find those categories and make them strong. If I doubt God's provision, I must get strong in that area or whatever it might be so that I cannot be manipulated by Satan by take, and take a wrong path and do something stupid like Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, where am I at? Yeah, go ahead, 20. Yeah, your, your answer actually lined up right with my question. Just wanted to add to it. Okay. So, you know, I dealt with a lot of people, especially uh, a lot of believers in my old church and, you know, some very loving, loving brothers, you know, in the Lord. And, um, you know, like doctor was saying, you know, perfect, perfect love cast out all fear. So I, I dealt with some some brothers that would say, well, um, you know, I'm trusting in, in the Lord by faith and I'm taking this vaccine. 
Oh, and boy. I'm like, well, why don't you that no deadly poison can harm me that I'm taking it. But I'm like, well, why don't you trust in the Lord that this this uh, uh, poisonous sickness or whatever it is? Why aren't you trusting in the Lord then and not leaning to your own understanding and taking it in the first place? You know, good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. That was that's a, such a cop out to say, I'm going to take poison and I'm going to throw myself off the temple and hope the Lord prevents me from getting dashed to pieces. That's the temptation of the Lord, which the Lord forbid. You're, you're exactly right. Um, and, and, and what is the thing that the Lord does? He gives us wisdom, right? He, he convicts us. He tells us, look, don't do this. And, and to spiritualize that thing and say, well, you know, the Lord will protect me. Um, that, boy, that's, uh, you're going to ask for that one. You're tempting the Lord on that one. And, and the Lord said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord, right? Remember that? Throw yourself off the temple and his angels will carry you through. Woo, you do that. You're going to hit the ground. You're going to hit the ground because he's not going to do that. He's not going to rescue you when he already warned you beforehand, don't do that. Then you, you're going to test him. Uh-uh, I wouldn't even go there. You're going to die. You're going to die uh, jumping off that cliff. Where am I at? You're all good. Okay, now, you, now here's the breaker. Why was the punishment so severe? I know that, but I think everybody in this room has lied. Probably 20 times today. Because um, it's just a general human condition, right? Who didn't lie today? Raise your hand. Who didn't lie? Right there, Pam, right there. You're lying now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway okay so while it remained was it not your own he says and after it was sold was it not uh, your own control why you've why have you conceived this thing in your heart where's the area of belief the heart this is where the transaction happened where he yielded to satan in his heart you have not lied to men but to god Huh, big time. You've not lied to man. You have lied on the vertical level, dude. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. That's it, he's dead. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her. Now, she has an ability to get out of this if she'll confess it correctly, but she won't. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together? There's the, there's the covenant right there. You have agreed together. You and your wife conspired to do this. That's the same as Achan. Oh, to test the spirit of the Lord. You, 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 this is how far you guys went. You tested the Holy Spirit in this. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. She's dead at that point in time. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, carried her out and buried her by their husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. And that's Acts 5. Okay, 
So now let's, let's get into the, 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 the severe discipline for this. How come we don't see this today? Because there's plenty of people who do this all the time. They lie to, the, they lie to God. They, you know, they, they, they play games with God. They lie to him. So it's, it's, it's not like it's a, you know, a rare thing that what Ananias and Sapphira did. People do, Christians do this all the time, but they don't have the severity of what happened in Acts. So then, then to understand this, you have to understand the background to this about the disciples. And the key to understanding the discipline here that Peter did is to understand what the disciples or the apostles had at that time. Okay? So let me go to another text. This is in Matthew 16. This is after Peter's um, response uh, that he is the son of the living God. At Beneas Falls, he does this. And, um, and, and Christ says, heaven and earth have not... Uh, um, Revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the rock is not Peter. The rock is the confession that Messiah is the Son of God, the Messiah. Okay? That's the rock that we're building off of. Okay? And I will, on that rock, I will build my church, he says. Okay? Then, in verse 19, he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay. To understand what these terms mean, you have to understand Hebraic background. You have to understand that these are legal terms. Legal terms under Hebrew law. Okay. So the concept of binding and loosing is a legal term, which means that if I bind someone, I am convicting them of sin. Okay? That they're guilty and I'm going to convict them. Loosing means I'm going to allow you to go free. I'm going to set you free based on what I hear in this court, on the evidence. And if there's not enough evidence, I will loose you. So binding and loosing is a Hebraic judicial term for either convicting you and sending you to jail or releasing you. Okay? So that's the legal terms. So Messiah uses these legal terms, but then he connects it to the keys of the kingdom. So this is where you have to jump into the book of Acts and realize what are the keys of the kingdom for? Well, keys in Hebrew, in Hebraic understanding always represents authority. Authority. Anyone that has a key in the Hebraic culture has authority. Messiah will say this in the book of Revelation, that I have the keys of David. The keys of David represent an authority for the messianic figure to rule and reign on David's throne for a thousand years. And the storehouses of riches of David, uh, in other words, the father's riches. So Messiah has David's authority to rule and reign in the messianic age on David's throne and has access to God the Father's storehouse of blessings. That's what that key of David means. It's an authority issue. And he also has the key of death and Hades as well, he mentions. Okay, but what is this key of the kingdom? Okay, so as you notice in the gospel, he has been pronouncing the, the, the kingdom to come. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. 
right? If they would have accepted Messiah, he would have started the kingdom at that point in time, okay? He would have went to the cross and after the resurrection would have initiated the kingdom and it would have started then, okay? But here's the problem and you know it. By year one and a half, Israel's leaders reject the Messiah based on saying that he has, um, he's casting out people by the spirit of Beelzebub, the devil, and he is demon-possessed. He is not the Messiah, and his supernatural activities is because of he, he's working through the power of Satan. That's the official, official rejection by the religious leaders year one and a half, okay? So at that point, they commit the unpardonable sin. Great. Impartable sin means that Israel as a nation is condemned to a physical judgment, which will happen in 70 AD when Titus goes after uh, the temple and Jerusalem and kills a million and a half Jews, according to Josephus, okay? That was the, the penalty for the unpardonable sin for the nation of Israel, okay? That being the case, what happened to the kingdom once Israel rejects the kingdom offer? What does he then start? He goes right after Matthew 12 into Matthew 13 and he starts giving the mystery kingdom parables. So now the, the messianic kingdom that we look forward to in the future was re, rescinded and put on hold. And he says, you shall not see me again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which will happen in the tribulation. And then the, the messianic kingdom will start at the second coming. But until then, we're in a kingdom now, aren't we? But this kingdom is called the mystery kingdom. The mystery kingdom is lined out in Matthew 13 through all the parables. If you study all the parables, it will tell you the course of the age that we're in right now. We're in the mystery kingdom. The mystery kingdom is an invisible kingdom. It is Christ ruling and reigning in the hearts of believers right now. In the future, it will actually be a physical kingdom, right? A physical kingdom. Right now, it's an invisible kingdom in the hearts of believers. So we represent the kingdom in that sense until he finally ushers it in. Okay. Therefore, when he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or it, 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 the reason he uses heaven instead of God is because it's Jewish. They were not, they're not, not going to say the name of God. So let's say kingdom of, of, of uh, heaven. What kingdom is he referring to then? The mystery kingdom. He's not referring to the messianic kingdom. He's referring to the mystery kingdom. And in the mystery kingdom, he is telling Peter and the apostles that I'm giving you jurisdiction legally now. And through that jurisdiction, you have the ability and the authority to bind on earth, either hold someone's sins against them, or you may loose them depending on the evidence. I'm giving you that authority, number one. The second thing I'm giving you is the authority to authenticate the Great Commission. This is what the keys of the kingdom represent. So if you go to Acts 1, Peter and the apostles are told, and you will go through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth, okay? That's how he wants them to start the Great Commission. So, 
since Peter has the keys of authority of the kingdom, along with the ability to judge and release, Peter must be there to authenticate every time the gospel reaches a new group, according to what he said in Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. And Acts 1 through 9, or 1 through 10, show you this. That's the whole purpose of chapters 1 through 10 in Acts, is to show you that the gospel is going to the different groups that Jesus said it would go to. So here's, here's how it goes. The first group is the Jews. When did they receive the gospel? In Acts. Pentecost. Who was there? Peter. Peter is actually preaching to them. And they, they realize Peter is speaking in different tongues and the apostles are speaking different tongues. And hence, the first group, Jerusalem and Judea, have now been hit with the gospel now. The gospel is now being preached to them. It was preached to them before, but now it's after the resurrection, right? This Jesus whom you crucified is resurrected, okay? First group. So after Jerusalem and Judea are, are hit, then what happens? What's the next group? Samaria. So what happens in Samaria? Philip goes there, has a major breakout of the gospel. People are getting saved. And what happens? They call for Peter. Peter has to go over to Samaria and he has to authenticate that the Samaritans are, have been saved. And then he lays hands on them and then, then they receive the Holy Spirit. This is what the Pentecostals get wrong about the receiving the Holy Spirit which it, when it's delayed in this sense. I'll explain the Holy Spirit delay in just a second. So Peter authenticates this. He lays hands, gospel hit the Samaritans. What's the next group? Other ends of the earth, right? So what happens in Acts? Who's, who's the first Gentile to be saved? Cornelius. Who goes to see Cornelius? Peter. Remember Peter, and this is a big stumbling block for him. He's, he's like, I don't know, man, Gentiles. I can deal with Samaritans because they're half Jew, but the Goyim, I don't know. And remember he has his vision in Joppa. What's the vision? The food comes down. He says, don't call what I say is, I, I have declared clean. Don't call it unclean, referring to the Gentiles. So what happens? Peter goes the next day, realizes that Cornelius has been saved and his family gets saved. He baptizes him and then they receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter is there. And so what happens is that is the last group. Now the gospel is going all to the other ends of the earth. It has went to Judea, Samaria, and now it's hit the Gentiles, the other ends of the earth. The gospel now is free to go out. And Peter has been there to authenticate it and open the door with the keys of the kingdom. Why is there a delay in receiving the Spirit? Because Peter has to authenticate it first because he has the keys of the kingdom. And this is what the Pentecostals totally get wrong because they don't know the Jewish background. They say, well, there's a delay in people getting the Spirit, so there must be a second blessing that people get later on in their walk. No, it's you to understand the Hebrew context. You to understand the keys of the kingdom. After he opens that door to the Gentiles, Baptism of the Holy Spirit will immediately start happening to anyone who believes. 
And so at that point, the keys have been, uh, 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 have been opened and Peter no longer has to go there to authenticate it. So now once Peter's done, guess what Acts starts doing now? It starts, starts focusing on Paul going to the Gentiles, right? Where Peter leaves off, Paul takes it and goes because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. But Peter had to be there to authenticate it to say, yes, the Gentiles are getting saved now. Boom, once he's done, it's Paul's job. So, back to Ananias and Sapphira. So Peter has amazing authority as an apostle. Therefore, what he did with Ananias and Sapphira is what we call today church discipline. But with Peter being an apostle and having the authority of the keys of of the kingdom... And being able to bind and loose, that means his form of church discipline is far different than even what we could do at Rock Harbor because he could actually commit, uh, sorry, uh, hold the penalty against them and have them have capital punishment for what they did. And that's what he does. He commits them, he, he doesn't loose them, he binds them. And what did Jesus say? If whatever, Peter, you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. If you decide to, to allow capital punishment, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you that authority to do so. And Peter kills him for what he did. It has nothing to do with, you know, that believers don't do that today. Believers do, but here's the problem. The apostles are not here they had a level of discernment that you and I don't have. They had gifts permanently with them. They had the ability to raise people from the dead, miracle gifts, and they could see into the hearts of people. They knew. How did Peter know that you lied to the Holy Spirit and this is what you did? I don't have that ability, but they did. So when you have that ability as an apostle, you can go a little bit further in your discipline. And they did. But that's why today... The apostles are not here and no one can claim to be an apostle because you had to see the resurrected Messiah and be with him for the three and a half years. And hence, the church can only practice Matthew 18, which is the last stage is excommunication. And guess where the death penalty arrives then? Not with the church, but remember 1 Corinthians 5, what happens? We give him over to Satan and Satan can kill him. That's who now retains the death penalty on a sinning believer is we give them over to Satan and Satan will kill them, not the church. If they're bound, does that mean they automatically went to hell? No, 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 no. No, uh, they they go to heaven because they're believers, but they lost their physical life for what they did. There's, yeah, you lose rewards in that. They lost rewards. They're still in heaven, but Peter had the ability to penalize them and say, you're dead. You're dead. I fully believe that, you, you know, even back to, to Achan and his wife, you'll see Achan and his wife one day, but what they did required the death penalty and, and they, they were killed. Same is true with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says, I'm not, I'm not tolerating this. Peter had the ability because, and the apostles did too, to read their heart. He read their heart. 
I know exactly what you did. You can't lie to me because the Holy, the Holy Spirit's telling me what you did. Now, he's not Messiah in that sense. He's not omniscient, but the Holy Spirit's telling them, they're lying to you straight to your face. This is what they did and this is what they conspired. And, that, and that's how you can tell in the text, he's telling them what they did. How did he know that? That's why he, because he has the keys of the kingdom. And said, so, you're done. I'm not tolerating this. So with that said, um, this is where in church history, they took, the church took this and ran and misapplied it. And do you know how the church did this? When the church married the state, guess how they binded and loosened with people? Well, it's, it's, not, it's not so much that, is that when you had a heretic, we're going to kill you. And that's where the burning of the stakes came from. The torturing of people came from. They used this passage right here in the Middle Ages to kill people because they, the, the Catholic Church thought they had the keys of Peter. If you notice in the Vatican and above the Pope, he'll have two keys. Have you ever noticed that? He's using from that Matthew 18 out of context because the Pope is no apostle. You, in order to, to do the keys of the kingdom, you have to be an apostle. Okay. So the, pope, the popes throughout the years then would slaughter masses based on this verse that they had the ability to execute. Now, here's the thing. You get past the, 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 Cal, the, the Catholic Church and you move into the Reformation, Calvin and Luther were doing the same thing. Calvin and Luther had state-ran churches. Lutheranism in Germany, right? Anglicanism in, in, in uh, England. You had... Um, Calvinism up there in Sweden uh, and, and, you know, all the other guys. What they did then is that, yes, they were broken away from the Catholic Church, but all they did is create a church and then married it with the state. And guess what? They would use the state military as the enforcement of binding and loosening, and that's why they could kill people. That's why uh, Martin Luther had no problem using Matthew 16 to kill Jews, because his, his thing at the end was, we'll just put them in their synagogue and, and, and uh, board the doors up and burn them in there for rejecting the Messiah. That's how he was misusing Matthew 16 of binding and loosing. You see how, I mean, there's a book out there and I can't remember it. It's called Christian Jihad. It's a good book actually because it tells you how bloody the Catholic church was in killing an estimation of over 50 million people people during the middle ages and into the reformation because of using the binding earth because see they think that the keys passed to peter and passed on from peter to the next pope there wasn't what we call a real pope until about 900 a.d before then, there was no such thing as a Catholic church. There was bishops, and that's just another t name for presbyter um, or elder or pastor. But really, what you're looking at today, the Catholic church started around 900 when they started doing this nonsense. It wasn't before then because you had the Orthodox church. And the Orthodox church didn't practice this. But it started to happen when the Catholic church married the state. So you had the Catholic church telling kings what to do. 
And they would massacre people. They would go to war. Whatever the Pope told them, they would go to war because the Pope had the keys of the kingdom. You see how dangerous that is? In studying church history, because of that, the church is one of the most bloodiest vehicles in church history because of misinterpreting a passage. And, and let's start to the basis of it. Why did the Catholic church and why did the early church fathers not get this? It's one thing. It comes down to one thing when you study church history. The minute the church divorced itself from Israel was its death knell. Because every heresy starts with not understanding the Jewish background of the keys of the kingdom. That's it. When you boil everything down, the atrocities that the Catholic Church did and the Reformation did all trace back to not understanding the Hebraic background and the Jewish idioms and the way they said things. And, 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 and now today, most of the heresies today stem around not knowing the Jewish background. I'll give you an example. The Millerite movement. The Millerite movement that believes you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You ever heard that? It's in most cults. And they say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You know where they got that? Misunderstanding John 3. What do you mean? Jesus says this, and it's a Jewish idiom. You ready for it? Nicodemus, you must be born of water and of the spirit. What's the water? It's the embryonic fluid of a woman because that's a Jewish term. Being born of water means you're born of a woman because of the embryonic fluid. That's a Jewish idiom. They use it all the time. So when Jesus said, he said, first number one, you gotta be human. And then number two, you gotta be born of the spirit. But if you don't know the Jewish idiom, guess how you're gonna take the water? Baptism. You're totally going to miss it because you don't know the Jewish context. Wow. How about this? Outer darkness. That's a Jewish idiom. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jewish idiom. Most people, Gentile, reading that says, oh, that's hell. It's not referring to hell at all. That's a Jewish common idiom that they would use. Weeping and gnashing of teeth means extreme regret and sorrow. Outer darkness means being cast out of a banquet into the street. You're excluded from the banquet. It doesn't mean going to hell. It means being excluded from a banquet in terms of rewards. Because if you know the Jewish culture and you know how the Jewish streets were, you know how it was? You didn't stay on the streets at night because they were dark. They didn't have night lights or anything like that, right? So when you're going to a, somebody's house for a party or a feast, you would go, they would have their gates open and into their courtyard, right? And then you would go into the courtyard, but everyone, once they're in, they close the gates. Why? Because we don't want any stragglers coming in that shouldn't be here. So everyone gets in, they close the gates, and you're now in this courtyard. And the way the Jewish home was, it was in a, a horseshoe semicircle type of thing, square. And you would go into the feasting room. To be excluded from the feasting means that you are out on the street and the doors are closed so you don't get to participate in the feast. That's what outer darkness means. 
But yet, if you just read that from a Gentile perspective, you're gonna say, that's gotta be hell. That's gotta be hell. The problem is in the text that it's used, it's used for believers who are unfaithful. So if, if, if I'm using, if I go to that text, like the parable of the, uh, of the talents has that term in it, okay? The guy who buried his talent, what happens? He's cast, cast him, bind his foot, cast him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't think that's hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is that believer right there, that servant is gonna have extreme regret. But where and when? Oh, it's when he's in outer darkness. When will he be in outer darkness? When will he be excluded from a feast? Ah, at the marriage supper of the lamb in the kingdom. He'll be in the kingdom, but he doesn't get to participate in the feast, the wedding feast. He's excluded. And hence what that means since he's excluded is meant, it means that he wasn't rewarded because in order to go to the marriage supper of the lamb, it's not an automatic that you're simply a believer and you go. You'll be in the kingdom because your entrance into the kingdom is belief. Your ability to dine with Jesus is a reward. And if you are not rewarded, you are now cast into outer darkness, which means in, in, in our terms, exclusion. You are excluded from a reward of dining with the king because you did nothing with your life. You see what I'm saying? So you're excluded from the feast. And so that's why Jesus uses that with, unbelie- sorry, with believers to say you're gonna lose rewards and be excluded from the things I wanna give you. First of all, you won't, you won't even be there. You'll be at the kingdom, but you're, you're no, you won't be in the dining hall with everybody. So, so look at those texts again and understand it in the framework of a Jewish idiom and all of a sudden those things pop out. Here's another idea. From a Jewish perspective, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not gospels about salvation. John is about salvation. So what is Matthew, Mark, and Luke about? Discipleship. It is only in John's gospel where you will see, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.16, right? You will not see passages like John 3.16 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are focusing in on believers' discipleship. Yes, they present Jesus as king. And yes, it'll say that people believed in him, but you will not have a clear gospel presentation like you will in John. John is all over the gospel. And he, and he ends it, these things are written so you may know you, uh, that you can uh, be saved and believe. He tells you it's a gospel. I mean, it's an evangelistic tract. So that's the understanding of this. So we'll go back to here. So the reason this doesn't happen today is because no one has the ability to be an apostle and, and hence does not have the discernment, does not have the gifts where the Holy Spirit's telling you that guy's lying to you, that guy's lying to you, that girl's lying to you. That guy. You don't have that. And hence we are kept at bay in church discipline and left to excommunication. That's what, what's different in the book of Acts. And by the way, you do not build doctrine off the book of Acts. Acts is a transitional book. It's showing you their acts and how the church is being formed, but you will not get into official church doctrine until you're in Paul's and Peter's letters, 
later on where he starts laying down what the church looked like. You're looking at the embryonic formation of the church and you're in a transition period between the Mosaic period and the church period. And there's a lot of weird overlap going on at the same time. To build doctrine off of the book of Acts, you will end up in heresy. You just will. You think about all the cults that have started basing their doctrines off of the book of Acts. Okay? The radical Pentecostals, the radical Charismatics have built their doctrine on the Holy Spirit off the book of Acts. That's wrong. You're going you're gonna to get into heresy. So any questions? Clear as mud, right? Okay. Does that make sense for Ananias and Sapphira? That's why. Anyway, let's take a break. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.